friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. Good morning. Good morning. I know you love the greet time, but it is also hot, and I'm not shortening the message so you can have a longer greet time. Today's message, I don't usually communicate the title, but today's message Hope in the Morning. Hope in the Morning. Because what I know is whether it was this week or sometime in the last 12 to 18 months, that you've probably wrestled with God. Whether it was death, loss of a job, shattered hopes and dreams, broken relationships, working in the medical field during a global pandemic, exhausted by a battle with depression or anxiety or continued addiction. Said more raw and bluntly, we've been disappointed by God. God has in some ways let us down. I think we've all had those times when we can certainly agree that his ways are not our ways because in light of what happened, he certainly wasn't thinking what we were thinking. But I think it's helpful to read that we're not alone in our feelings of disappointment with the Almighty. The Bible is full of stories of sorrow and suffering and even gives us glimpses into conversations with God. Job, Psalms 39, Psalms 88, just to name a few, and we'll talk about those today. Why do the righteous suffer? Job wanted to know that. He didn't understand. And he does not hesitate in his anguish in the shortest of terms. We see in chapter 3 where Job's just being real gut level honest with God. And he says, let the day perish in which I was born. And then he says, why didn't I die at birth? And finally, why is light given to one who cannot see, whom God has fenced in? Just real raw, honest emotions. And we see that Job's first lament here in chapter 3 is mostly made up of questions. The cause of his suffering is a mystery. And indeed, it is, and indeed, it is probably the greatest mystery to our faith today. Why does God allow the people that he loves to suffer? Job doesn't know the answer, and his friends were certainly of no help, right? Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they come along and they say, there's no such thing as unjust suffering. So if life is this bad for you, you must have done something wrong. But unlike the karmic religions, 
Christianity makes room for unjust suffering. See, in the karmic religions, it's whatever you're suffering now is to pay for some sin of another carnation, right? Not true in our faith. At the end of the book of Job, God is actually furious with Job's friends. He knows that due to the brokenness of our world, that innocent people suffer. We see at the end end of Psalms 39, which is just... Just this lament of the psalmist crying out to God or really crying at God, in some ways cursing God. He says at the end of the psalm, he says, turn your gaze away from me that I might smile again before I depart and am no more. Before I die, God, would you just look away from me so that I could have some peace? Because you seem to not be helping very much. And then at the end of Psalms 88, it says, You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. You know what? Darkness, suffering, pain, the abyss, it's been a better friend to me than you have, God. But the presence of Job, several chapters in Job, and and certainly Psalms 39 and Psalms 88, I think... The fact that they are in the Bible reveals to us God's compassion and his understanding. He knows how people feel and speak when they're desperate. What's interesting to note is the psalmist and Job, and as we'll see in a little bit, Habakkuk, none of the main characters here ever abandoned God. Just as a side note, I think we should assume I think it's good for us to assume that Satan says the same thing to God about us that he did to God about Job. And that is, they don't don't love you. They love your stuff. They love you because of what you do for them. It's this transactional relationship with them, humans. They love themselves first and foremost, and they love the doors that you can open and help them get what they want. And I think it's just a helpful question to maturing questions I think it's a maturing question to ask as Christians, is that true of us? Is Satan right? I think if we're honest to some degree, we would say yes. We start out that way, don't we? We want something from God, right? Whether it's heaven, right? And certainly the old way to share the gospel is, you know, Uh, If you don't pray this prayer, you're going to have eternal conscious torment that goes on forever and ever and ever. And if one of those preachers was here today, he would say, if you think it's hot in here, right? And so we're like, well, whatever whatever it is, I'll take option B because option A doesn't sound very good, right? So so we start out that way sometimes. We'll We'll take heaven. And we want earthly things too. We want the blessed Life. God says at the end of the book of Job that Job honored him. Really? Did you you read some of his words? Did you read some of his prayers? But the thing that God knows is that Job never walked away from him. Somebody, you know, on Instagram put a little picture with these words on it. Said, and this was this week and quite frankly needed to hear it. 
It's not about the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith. I thought that was good. Job's faith probably went like this. In fact, if you read the book of Job, you'll see that it did. But the object of his faith never changed. Job stayed with God when it appeared that he was getting very little out of the relationship. But in the end, he got it all. Which is ultimately what defeats Satan, right? Isn't that what defeats Satan? Our trust in God. He, he says, you're God and I'm not. And you know, it's often in the darkness that we recognize whether we really are serving God or whether we're just attempting to get him to serve us. But if we allow it, regardless of what your darkness was, whether you knew Daniel whether you had just a horrendous last year. Darkness can make us an unflappable person. Strong, unwavering, enduring, and resolute. How can we believe that, though? How can we believe that? At the end of Psalms 39, God's face is turned away, right? And at the end of Psalms 88, darkness. God's face turned away, darkness. Does that remind you of anything else from the New Testament? How about Matthew 27? From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabatani, which means, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned and looked the other way? You see, Jesus was truly abandoned so that you and I will only ever feel abandoned, but never be. Paula reminded me at the funeral, one of the things about Daniel is he had this uncanny memory to be able to quote movies, right? I don't know if he had this one or not, but from the great theological movie, The Princess Bride says this, Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. And you know what? I think expectations determine in large part how we actually deal with suffering. At times we have these false expectations and those beliefs can actually wreck our psyche. Our false assumptions can wreck our own psyche. Because we think that we might be the lone survivor that gets to avoid pain. But suffering shows up in such innumerable ways that it's ultimately inevitable for all of us. We might not put it in these words... But we must think it. In fact, we, we kind of live it out that we must be greater than our master, right? Because we know that bad things have happened to Jesus, but think that if we just stay close enough to him, they won't happen to us. But he tells us that a servant is not greater than his master. You know, sometimes half the pain isn't actually from the event that happened. It's from the shattered expectation of the hope that we would never have to experience it. And so we say and think, this should not be happening to me. So when we're passed over for a job or lose a job, 
When we become chronically ill or we lose someone we love, what then? We're faced with the question, if God was blessing me in the good times, is he punishing me now? And so I repeat, due to the brokenness in our world, innocent people suffer. Jesus was innocent. He loved his father perfectly with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he loved his neighbor unconditionally. He of all people did not deserve suffering. So we can take some solace in the fact that God knows what it's like to suffer unjustly. But he can and promises to bring about good in the midst of pain. Tom sent an email this week and said, I've heard it said there's nothing like the prospect of death to clarify the importance of life. He went on to say, Daniel's passing has made me want to clarify my life. I've had the privilege of being in a lot of rooms with different people who were grieving the loss. People in a small group, even last night, saying words like this, Daniel has caused me to want to be a better man. And that's just it. Dark times will either make us worse or better, harder or more tender, weaker or stronger, but suffering will rarely leave you as you were. Which way we will go is determined by our response. So the question is, what does the Christian faith have to offer? See, Christianity... When it first began, it pioneered this enabling of grief that didn't destroy a person. Ronald Ronald Rittgers wrote a book called The Reformation of Suffering. And he says that Christianity displaced the older cultures, among other things, because of the way that Jesus' followers approached suffering. Before then, if you were to be a virtuous person, don't get attached Don't let anything get to you. That's how you can be a virtuous person. But that was difficult for any populace to hear. Then along comes Christianity and offers something new and something real. And Jesus gives us at least three things that we can rub into our grief. Like in the old days, salt would be rubbed into meat to keep it from going bad. The first thing that Rutgers points out, is that we have a God who suffers. We have a weeping Savior. There's a book written, I think it's about 100 years old now, called The Emotional Life of Jesus. And it chronologically goes through all the different times that Jesus is moved with compassion, that he's stirred and that he suffers. There is no other religion that has a deity that suffers. Yet Jesus takes on flesh and he, and he suffers with us and he suffers for us. And he can look at us and he says, I know what it's like. I know what your last year has been like. I know what your last week has been like. I know. The second thing he points out is that the kingdom of God is an unending culture of love. The kingdom of God is not just this place that we aspire to get to and float around. 
It is the place of unending love. So not only do we get to join into and live into God's perfect community of love that he's had with the Trinities from the very beginning, we get to do it there with our loved ones forever. Jonathan Edwards, who you've heard me repudiate one of his sermons from this stage, centers in the hands of an angry God. He wrote another sermon. It wasn't so bad. In fact, it was great, called Heaven is a World of Love, where he encourages us to stop thinking about heaven with harps and streets of gold. But heaven is filled. It's a world. It's an existence filled with nothing but love. And that's not just supposed to be for the future. It's here available in the present right now. The third thing, it's probably obvious. The third thing that we get to rub into our tears is the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection taught us that we actually get our bodies back, new and improved. So the future isn't about this ethereal place, right, where our spirits just hover around and, and, and hover above pearly gates and diamond-studded fences Streets of gold. No, we get earth back the way it was intended from the beginning. Jesus raises from the dead and he eats a fish in front of his followers. Right? He's proving to them that he's not a ghost and he's not just a spirit. And in case they didn't get the innuendo, he says a spirit has not flesh and bones. But look, I do. And that proves a restoration of life that we never thought possible. Humans never thought possible before that moment. And so we can take those things and rub them in. And we can become better. Not bitter. Not hard. Not despondent. And what we saw from the early church is that Christianity flourished and grew and can once again today if there'll be a body of people who will respond to suffering with that kind of hope. People are hungry for this kind of hope. And truthfully, the Cranfords have modeled that. Don't get me wrong, there are certainly going to be times for some head scratching. Mark chapter 5 just one example of many, but, but there's a little girl who's dying. Jairus' daughter is dying, and they're in a hurry to get Jesus to the daughter because they know that he can do something about it. And along the way, there's this woman who's chronically ill, and she reaches out, grabs the hem of his garment, and he stops and pauses. And he lifts her up and begins this dialogue, has a conversation with her, and it must have gone on for a while. So long that, that Jairus' friends came back and they said, don't bother the master anymore. Your daughter's gone. Can you imagine what was going through Jairus' mind? We were so close. Jesus, what, what are you doing? This lady's been chronically ill. She had another hour. My daughter didn't. 
man, what was he doing? The timing couldn't have been any worse, right? Here's what we know. Jesus will not be hurried. He, he sees things that we don't see from human reasoning. In this story, in Mark chapter 5, the latter portion, we, we actually get to see a positive outcome for the suffering. But I'll be honest, in, in most cases, we actually never get to see the purpose of suffering. But Jesus knows what we don't know. He knows that this little girl is not going to be any worse due to his delay. In fact, there's going to be more joy, more glory when he gives her what he wants. And when he gets there, he, he takes her by the hand and he says in Aramaic, which, which proves to us, this is an eyewitness account. In Aramaic, he says, Talitha kum. And the Bible explains what that means, which means little girl, get up. And the word that's used here is really an intimate word. It's a word of affection. It's the, it's the word that a parent would use for a little child. So really what he's saying is sweetheart, princess, it's time to get up. And then he lifts her right out of death. And in that moment they saw and we get to see today the magnitude and mixture of his love and power. Death is the biggest foe in this realm. And Jesus reaches right through it and pulls her out. It's his way of saying that even if you have sunk into death, it's just a good night's sleep. So for you, whether it's the death of a loved one or any other timing issue, when we see his power mixed with his love and tenderness, why would we want to rush someone like that? We know that God didn't create suffering, and we know from the revelation that one day he's going to put an end to it. So why not now? Hurry up, Lord. While I may not have all the answers that would satisfy you today, I do know what it can't be. It can't be that he doesn't love us. Look at his love. Look at his tenderness. Look at how he was willing to die excruciatingly for us. We have a God who is willing to plunge himself into our suffering. And we can rest in the fact that we are loved by him no matter how we feel. And we can rest. And we can rub that into our grief. And we can hold on to the hope that one day he will release us from pain and suffering forever. And that, my friends, is worthy of our praise. Amen? Even in advance. Where's Todd? This is the point he's supposed to go. Psst. Okay. The night I got the call from Stuart. About 11.47, and uh, obviously there was no going back to sleep at that point. So uh, I remembered Habakkuk was, was one of those books that got people through when they were grieving, right? You know, Habakkuk pouring out his heart. So it's only three chapters, and so I decided to turn to there for some sense of encouragement. 
I didn't start out by getting it, by the way, because Habakkuk in one two says, How long will I call out for help and you will not hear? He goes on to say in chapter 1, Why do you make me see iniquities? How long? Why? Aren't those the questions we have? By chapter 3, verse 16, Habakkuk is unraveled right before our eyes. And he's doing the best he can with the words that he's got. And he says this in verse 17. He says, though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit on the vines, though the produce of the olive fails and and the fields yield no food, though the flock is cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls. Folks, this is an ancient way of total depravity and desperation. He's at a complete loss. Complete despair. There's no food. There's no money for food. He feels like he's just going to shrivel up and die. And by the way, in chapter 1 and 2, God gives him this glimpse of what's going to happen to them. The Babylonians are going to come in. It's going to get worse, right? And he's going to use people that are worse than the Israelites to discipline the Israelites. And he sees all of this and he's in utter anguish. But, man, I really believe we have something to learn from Habakkuk. Because in verse 18, he says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of deer and makes me tread upon the heights. There's two words If you don't walk out with anything else, there's two words we can't miss today. In any season of suffering, I will. I will. Habakkuk is in total despair. Everything's out of his control. Most of these issues are contingent upon rain, and he can't do anything about that. He can't make it better. But he does this. He makes a decision, and that decision goes against how he feels. You know, sometimes our faith and feelings cohabitate, right? Sometimes we feel faith-ish. But sometimes our faith and our feelings start fighting. And we've said it before that your faith, your feelings make a terrible engine, but they make a fine caboose. Your feelings make a a terrible engine that drives, but they make a fine caboose. Feelings should never be dismissed like they do not matter. But what did Habakkuk do? He says, I will praise him anyways. Despite unanswered questions of how, how long, and, and why, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation, and I will praise him anyways. I, I will, I will rejoice. I will rejoice in the Lord. His problems had not changed, but what had changed 
his focus. He chose to focus on God like the Hebrew white writer encourages us to do. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. You want your faith to grow, get stronger, become perfect? You've got to fix your eyes on Jesus in the midst of the pain. What happens next? What happens when his focus changes? His weakness becomes strength. He says in 319, the Lord God is my strength. Strength didn't come when the circumstance changed. Strength came when he got invited. Amen. And then God goes to work. And he says, he, God, made my feet like the feet of deer. The picture is of this mountain deer, right? It's kind of like we have mountain goats. They, I don't know if you've ever watched them. They just climb on these little narrow pathways. It's unbelievable how they can, how they can navigate the terrain. They have this uncanny sure-footedness. See, we would love to read that he made the mountain flat, but he didn't. He did change their footing. He changed the strength in their legs to be able to face the mountain. So if your circumstances are set and the mountain is before you, ask him to change your feet, to strengthen your legs for the journey. And he will. And one day the difficult mountains and journeys will be over, but not in this world. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And that, my friends, is praiseworthy. That, my friends, is praiseworthy, right? I have overcome the world. And so I want to encourage you today to live a life of praise. Make it a way of life. So when you run into these kinds of trials, you don't have to start from scratch. So I ask you individually and as a family, have you, have we prepared for adversity by practicing faithfulness and thanksgiving during the good times. Job's, Habakkuk's unwavering habit of prayer and worship may have seemed odd or even obsessive at times. But now, looking back, we can see that a lifetime of faithful practice forge their capacity to remain faithful even during extreme circumstances. Our character, too, will be formed and forged over a lifetime of what we do. Man, I've been overwhelmed this week, really. By God's goodness, several times uh, this week... Just clear and evident, and I I don't want you to get this wrong. This is not inferred goodness of God because of what was happening to me or what he had done for me because, quite frankly, that was hard to see. 
It's easy for me, tempting for me, to talk about God's goodness in the light of my circumstances. When he's been good to me, when he's provided for me, when he's got me out of a jam. But this week, I really have been overwhelmed by his, the character of his kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and goodness. As I look back at those moments, they either came at or as a result of our time together in worship. Either at or as a result of our time together last Sunday. Monday at noontime. Wednesday worship at the funeral. Wednesday night right here. Saturday in the fellowship hall where the Cranfords gathered, shared stories, and worshiped. One of those moments, Kai and I talked a little bit about today, but we didn't talk about the early set. One of the times earlier this week we were singing, he's he's never going to let me down. Okay? Back to it. He's never going to let me down. And so I had to stop singing because I don't ever want to be fake or disingenuous, right? So I just stopped singing. And God gave me a picture. It seems people are getting a lot of pictures around here these days, and I thank God for that. I never get pictures, but I got one. I got one. I was sitting right over there, and I closed my eyes, and I'm wrestling with God, and I'm like, you know that's not true because you let me down this week. And I got this picture of I could see the back of what I knew was Jesus, and he was holding a child. And then he gives me, he turns around just enough to get the profile of his face. And I knew it was Jesus because he just he looked just like the chosen Jesus. That's what my Jesus looks like, right? Does he not have the best smile? He he gave me that smile in this, this picture, and he kind of nodded down at the child. Like, you get it now? This is what it means. This is what it means to never let you down. I hold on to you through it all, and I won't let you down. And as he walked away, true story, as he walked away, the, 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 the child was the head was kind of buried in his chest. So I never said, as he walked away this way, the head popped up and it was me as a child. You're never going to let me down. He's a good, good father. We sang that earlier, right? He is a good, good father. Happy Father's Day. Here's what I know. The practice of showing up in the house of the Lord and choosing to worship him no matter what the circumstances resulted in him showing me his goodness. It was a result of showing up. It's hard to explain, but I can promise you that was one of the most real moments I've ever had. And so I I sent him a note this week. I want to thank Jonathan and the staff and their leadership for channeling our energy and our focus to praise and prayer. For opening up this place on Mondays at noon. 
For those of you who come on Wednesday night when sometimes, almost every time I want to be here, but sometimes I don't. Last Wednesday was one of them. But your presence, your songs change everything for me. I needed that last Wednesday. So what we learned from Habakkuk was we got to remember, then we got to rejoice, then repeat. Remember, rejoice, repeat. Remember, rejoice, repeat. Chase retweeted a, uh, uh, art, an article this week called The Weapon of Worship. And so as the worship team comes back up and leads us in a song and we go to battle, I want us to close with me reading this to you. To fight our battles, God has given us the most powerful weapon of all, worship. In Revelations 19, during the cosmic battle, when the beast and his armies are defeated, Christ appears riding on a white horse. The redeemed follow Christ into battle, but notice how they're dressed. They aren't wearing armor or even carrying weapons. We have no record of the redeemed engaging in the conflict at all. They aren't there to fight. King Jesus doesn't need our help in the battle. We're there to bear witness. We're there to worship. The redeemed are, distressed in, or are dressed in white linen. That's not battle dress. That's dress for worship, for the high, holy, glorious worship in heaven. Amen? And that's not the first time we see it. What were they doing in Jer at Jericho? They marched around. They didn't, they didn't pick up their sword. They marched around seven times, started singing the trumpet blast, and the walls came down. Jehoshaphat fighting the Ammonites and the Moabites. He's like, God, what do I do? He's like, get the choir ready. He's like, maybe you didn't hear me. God, what do we do? <laughs> it's like, cue the choir. And the choir starts singing. He says, this isn't your battle. It's mine. Paul and Silas. They're in a Philippian jail. Wondering what is your perspective here? But they made a choice. I will. I will praise the Lord. And they started singing and the walls came down. We're going to stand and we're going to sing some of you are going to shout, dance, and raise your hands. And others may need to come up to the altar. Our prayer team is awesome. And they are prayed up. I've been with them this morning. So if you want to pray with them, if you want to pull them off to the side, this is how we fight our battles. Amen. Please stand.
via network.